All right, gang, it is that time of the week again. It is your favorite Tuesday you've had all week, and it's the best show you've listened to all day. We are stoked to have you join in the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio joining me today. Matt Dixon. And we have come uh, wildly unprepared for today's show. You should have heard us before the it's, intro. Well, I mean, we're spitballing over here. We're, we're grasping at stuff. Well, we're not. It, this is the thing. It's it's not that we're wildly unprepared. Or is unprepared. it just we have too much to talk about and we don't know what we want to focus on? It's is it not that? even that. I'm about to bring it all home and Matt's going to go, oh, you side dog, you. Right? Okay. It, and it is much like investors that do not have a game plan. What happens if you fail to plan? Okay. okay. And the idea is if you fail to plan, the old expression goes, plan to fail. Okay. Yep. And here's why we are bringing this up. We were wondering about today talking about, there's a number of things. There's so many things going on. Uh, first of all, markets are down today. Oh, yeah. And not like a little bit. I mean, we're talking about the S&P is down 2.04% today. The Dow down 1.63. NASDAQ down 2.83. And the Russell 2000 down 2.25% today. Now, ask me, Matt, am I freaking out? I don't think you are. I mean, I'm not freaking. markets go down and markets go up. Well, we have been really pampered. If we were to go back to, say, 2017 or 2018 or even 2019, actually really 2019, 2% swings in a day weren't that uncommon. Mm-hmm. But this year, it's kind of an uncommon it's been event. Well, really, since the big, big drop mm-hmm. after the, the initial COVID pandemic and the, and the shutdown started to happen. Right, the shutdown started happening in March, uh, and and like early March of 2020, and the markets collapsed through because, April. Because you're going, yeah. wait a second, we don't know how to make heads or tails of anything now. How are we supposed to value a market where you the economy shut down? Yeah. So people freak out. Right now, I will tell you that uh, it, it was entirely based on people's willingness to hold something versus their unwillingness to hold it. Right. It was a supply and demand function. We try to rationalize it as, no, no, look at all the, the reasons for how we determine price. But all that is is a justification for the demand side, mm-hmm. right? As we look, though, today, over the last year or year and a half since that, we've seen the markets begin to steadily climb. And we've been, I, I will call it kind of a, a cocktail of like hopium and, and money printing, mm-hmm. right? I hope it's going to be okay. Don't worry, the Fed's printing more money, and somehow it's going to get into your pocket or a business or something. We're going to keep it alive. That steady stream of hope. And that's that's kind of what it's all. You're saying there's a chance, yeah. right? So the trick here is that as everybody hoped, the market just kept climbing, and then it kept climbing, and then it became a rationalization for why it kept climbing. And it's the rationalization's been pretty simple for a while now. Tina. Right? There is no alternative. Where else can you put your money? Right? Risk is all mispriced. So the markets are going higher and volatility continued to drop. Now, we measure volatility with something called the VIX. Have you heard of the VIX, Matt? I actually have not. The volatility index, VIX. Okay. And what the volatility index is really measuring is it's it's part of it is option pricing, right? What is the the price of 
options. And when option pricing gets more expensive, it's because there's in higher implied volatility or higher implied risk in the options. If you think the markets are going to drop a lot, it costs more to insure them. Mm, that okay? makes sense. If you think the market's unlikely to drop, then the insurance is cheaper. And so the volatility index is measuring that option pricing. I'm oversimplifying here. Yeah, for but radio. it makes sense. So what's it been doing lately? It spiked like crazy starting last week. Okay. Volati- I mean, like went up by 70%. With the Evergrande movement. Well, was Evergrande that kind of what was tipped sort of the it off? Start, yeah, right? it kind of tipped it off a little bit. Well, I mean, yeah, China's a giant because player. Because the volatility seemed pretty low before that event. Oh, volatility's been very low. Yeah. Which is why a 2% move today feels awful. Right. <laughs> it feels bad. But it's not necessarily that extraordinary historically. Could it mean it things say. are just on sale? Well, it could be, but it's also showing us something about the markets. Okay. And I've talked about on this program, and if you're a longtime listener, you will have heard this term before. I've talked about how indexes, there are eclipse-like positions. Okay. Now, the, remember what what is an eclipse, right? Especially a uh, a solar eclipse, right? Yeah. The moon passes between the Earth and the Sun, and it casts a shadow onto the Earth. And if you're standing in that shadow, it effectively blocks the Sun out mm-hmm. from your perspective. Well, if you look at the composition of large indexes, especially the S and P five hundred or the Nasdaq in particular. What you find is that is only it that a, they're tech heavy. Well, yeah, only a few stocks this? represent maybe twenty to thirty or forty percent of that index, and it's only say a dozen or fewer stocks. Hmm. So imagine if you have a dozen stocks representing twenty-five percent of the S and P five hundred, which is so I think five hundred and three stocks. I know you think it'd be five hundred, but it's actually slightly more than that because of uh, the goofiness of transition. S and P five hundred and three. Yeah, it, just, it doesn't, doesn't have a good ring. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. So so you've got the S and P five hundred and twelve stocks out of the we'll just say five hundred because it's easier. Twelve stocks, or really ten stocks are twenty five percent of the weighting? And so if they take a big hit, the whole yeah. thing gets clobbered to death. Well, basically, if you've got 25% of the stocks having a great day and the rest of the stocks do nothing, it still has a great day. Right. Right? If 25% of the stocks go up by 4%, 25% of the weighting goes up 4% and the rest goes up zero. You made mm-hmm. 1% for the day. Well, and didn't Apple and Microsoft both have a terrible day today? Well, yeah, tech in general yeah. had a terrible day. And tech is the eclipse. Right, mm-hmm. tech has become the largest sector in the S and P five hundred, and it's become probably the largest sector in the U S economy. You know, so technology in, in a service economy and technology is the the prevailing sector for for where the goods and services are produced. So, if you think about that, then think about what's going on. Right? Oh, we have inflation. Federal Reserve comes out and says, "Well, you know, we might have to change the way we're interfering with uh, monetary policy." Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's their code word for saying we're worried about inflation, so we're going to let interest rates start to creep up higher because we want to slow down the velocity of money. I don't know why that the Fed voice is slightly like nasal there. We're going to slow down the velocity of money. <laughs> we're going to we're going to make money move slower in the system. So fewer dollars are available to chase after the same number of goods 
to help reduce inflation because now we're changing the demand side, the supply of dollars, or it affects demand because you know you only have so many dollars to to place in in your world, right? So if you mm-hmm. have fewer dollars to spend, you're going to adjust your demand to the more essential things, right? And that should impact the inflation cycle. So the Fed says, let's stop tapering. Let's stop doing bond purchases. It's going to slow down the velocity of money. And the markets go, wait a second, it's going to cost more to borrow money? And tech companies fall. Well, and I think I saw in the news that the other day, there was a bunch of major tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, General Motors, Samsung, they all met at the White House in a meeting to talk about the chip shortage. So, I mean, maybe the market's moved on some news relating to that. Well, that's all relevant, but I think there's another issue at play there. A deeper layer to this? I think it's a deeper layer. Okay. It comes back to China and the idea that, again, if if China... So, we can play this game. I mean, it's an interesting game. Um in fact, remind me and we'll come back to it. I want to finish this first point, though. Okay. About if the Fed changes the velocity of money, then it's to, to reduce inflation in the cycle. Well, if tech companies have been where the money's been made, mm-hmm. and a lot of what they're doing is they're reinvesting rather than paying dividends out, Uh-oh. then the cost of capital is changing. It's going to get more expensive f- to borrow money. And so most of these growth companies have debt on their balance sheets as part of their growth strategy. Hmm. That debt costs more. That is going to cut into their potential profit margin. So the stock price then presumably suffers because the person buying it looks at that and says, oh, well, the future profits are going to be harder to come by because the cost of capital has gone up. So that's the sort of link. If we're remember, it's all conjured up causal demand here, or, or it's, and the dividends really related there. Yeah, it's well, it's the supply and demand issue, right? The whole idea is the demand. Part of the demand is I expect to get paid back in the future with higher mm-hmm. value than I put in today, and if the expectation is that like, the future value changes, the demand drops. Right. So that's it. All comes down to supply and demand, right? But I this feel is like a, we talked about that last week too. Yep, it's a giant cocktail of how do we influence supply and demand, and it's because the person's demand is rationalized through all these formulas. Mm-hmm. It's also why sometimes the formulas can't explain anything, and it still goes up. Like the formula doesn't explain Tesla. Yeah. Right. The formulas no, don't doesn't. work for Tesla. People just say. I just believe it's going to get bigger and better and own the world. And first it's cars, then it's batteries, then it's space, right? Yeah. And so, and space goes forever. So Tesla's going to become the whole marketplace. And so the formula doesn't apply. Those people are just, I'll buy it through anything, right? Because yeah. I believe in it. I believe in Elon. Right. All right. Now I'm just being ridiculous. No, you're really not, though, because you know you've heard people say that before. This is we what, all know that person. It's what conjures up demand. And so sometimes demand is formulaic in nature and all. It's, it's because most of it comes from the financial wonks out there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it jumps the shark. It goes full retail and it goes completely into, uh, call it esoteric, just call it irrational. But it's the people believe in it because they do and they just want it right i know people that i know vegetarians that be, bought beyond meat because they were vegetarians they have no idea what the market is for it where it comes from 
whether or not crops are being hedged or there's enough soybeans in existence. They don't know any of that stuff. They just know I want vegetarian hamburger. So I'm investing in this. Right? Almost kind of like the Dutch Bros. Yeah, and, that... and I love the local story of Dutch Brothers, and I can't make a recommendation on air. It's fascinating to consider the implications because I think it's really interesting as investment. Hard to value in the short term because IPO markets are pretty dicey. But yeah, a bunch of people came to me and they're like, how do I get on the IPO of Dutch Brothers? I'm like, you needed to know somebody a long time ago. <laughs> now you got to buy it in the secondary market. And they're like, yeah, but it got really expensive in a hurry. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens. So, <laughs> you know, there you go. Anyway, we got a, a, another element at play that we'll come back to. And okay. that was, you talked about uh, why China was in the equation. And I'm going to draw a connection for our listeners, but we have to take an evil profit break first. So mm. there's the music. We're going to be right back. Stick around if you want to understand uh, we can't predict the future where this market's going, but we'll give you a whole bunch of rationalization and justification for the demand side of the curve. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dan Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, Matt. Catch us up. What are we talking about again? We're talking about so much stuff, David. We're talking about how the markets have been, you know, they're moving around a little bit. We saw a 2 or 3% drop, and we've got to keep a level head. Yeah, We're, we do. we got to keep a level head. We can't get emotional in times like these. Yep. If you want to get caught up, grab our podcast. It'll be at littlejohnfs.com. Tomorrow it'll get posted. And we started off with this simple premise. If you fail to plan, you can plan to fail. And then we started talking about where the markets are at right now. And uh, I want to go somewhere with this whole planning element. But I promised earlier we were going to talk a little bit about more about China. And just the, the interesting elements going. Now, here's your chance if you want to put on a foil hat. This is a good chance. Okay. So I'm We're just giving gonna, you ample time, right? So, so this is for the foil hat crowd, or if you need to, you, you know, put your cell phone in a noisy environment so it can't hear you, or whatever else, right? So that uh, that because this is the part where some people are going to go like, wait a minute. <laughs> I appreciate that sound effect, by the way. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that's that's not even on a board. I just did that. So I want us to. This is not where I'm going to first let me be real clear about the setup. We're going to talk about China today and this is not people that are Chinese. This is not about this is the, country, the population. Folks. This is about the country and their uh, government. Right. And and the and the government, but it's not directed at a person or the character qualities or anything like that, but it is the behavior of government. The same way we could talk about the United States government and that's faceless. It's like talking about corporations, right? Yeah. Corporations bad or whatever that may be. Well, corporations are are made up and run by people. Okay, so it, it, it's hard to be that generic, but we're still be it as it were. We're gonna use this example, but I, I just want to make sure that folks listening are aware this isn't about xenophobia and this isn't about some kind of racial element going on here. This is about this political is strategy. And economics. Yep. Yeah. So economics and political strategy. And here's a couple of 
things that that tie back to Evergrande last week. Okay, and Evergrande is this massive Chinese real estate development company, and what a lot of folks are unaware of is that China's been building and building and building, and their economy has been showing growth even through the pandemic. Of you know, slow growth was three or four percent, but seven to nine percent GDP growth per year. And what's the U.S. averaging? Like two. Okay. Between two and three. So they're trying to tout you know four percent higher GDP than us. So it's not just or, that. It's not like this is some kind of contest of well, let's look at GDP head to head. Because if you grow one percent of a trillion, right, mm -hmm. that's different than going one percent of a hundred billion, yeah, or seven percent of a hundred billion, right? Seven percent of a hundred billion is seven billion, but one percent of a trillion is still what ten billion, right? So it's bigger than seven percent of a hundred. So so it matters what you're measuring from too. That's true. Right? So there's there's relative versus absolute measurement. Something really important to understand in your investment world because what happens is we oftentimes when we're measuring upside, we tend to measure in percentages and when we measure in downside, we tend to measure in absolutes. Right? So I lost ten thousand dollars but I made twenty percent. A little data fitting there. Okay. Well, it's it's a little bit of it hurts more when they're real dollars. Yeah. Right. So people pay more attention to the losses because those tend to be more painful. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, the late Alex Trebek, who uh, one time said, "I don't gamble a lot because winning a hundred dollars doesn't bring me that much pleasure, but losing a hundred dollars pisses me off." I like that. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I feel too. That's that's how most of us, when we get down to it, feel is that the, the gambling is often not worth it because the losses hurt more than the gains feel good. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to China, and they've been building a bunch. Now I don't know all of the intricacies of the Chinese banking system. The reality is I don't know all the intricacies of the United States banking system, and I probably know a lot more than average. Oh, but yeah. but there's a it's a complex system. Well, I know that China and Evergrande and the banking system, they got a whole lot of real estate on the balance sheet in the form of collateral in one form or another. So a real estate collapse would be a real problem. But is that real estate actually being fully used? Or no, is no. It it, just... They have a bunch of it that they've built like entire cities that were largely unoccupied. Right. So is their value really their true value? I don't know the answer. What yeah. I'm saying is it is suspicious. And mm -hmm. now let's just play the foil hat game. Sure. Last week, China also announced a crackdown on what? Cryptocurrency, right? Yes. Okay. Crackdown on crypto. Now, again, now did they ban Bitcoin in China? Did I don't that know that it has been banned. Like officially, yeah. But the crackdown, what does this imply? Right? And so, again... I'm just wearing the foil hat with you here. I don't have all the answers. I'm just playing this this game in my mind going, what What am I looking at here? China just said we got a real estate problem and we may have to have the government step in to back this thing so that we don't have a massive financial default. So that means they may be potentially printing money or backstopping this in some form of government guarantee. Okay, well, that's not typical. 
And then we've also intervened in people's ability to access or utilize cryptocurrency. Well, what's the big deal about crypto? Why do people get into it so much? It's a hedge against, like for us, it's a hedge against the dollar. So in China. How? What does that mean? I I mean, it's kind of like the same thing in a sense, not necessarily exactly the same, but like gold, right? Like if you think that interest or that uh, inflation is going to run rampant, you might go to gold. Or, okay. So I'm getting more basic than that. I know oh. I'm leading you on this one, but what is it about Bitcoin that intrinsically makes it interesting? Oh, well, it's it's not like you can't track it. So it's yeah. First of all, it's, it's anonymous, it's, right? It's right, running it's potentially through, anonymous. Yeah, it's got blockchain technology behind it. Okay, so, so that and that's that's the whole concept. It's not of how in it's the U.S. It. banking system. Aha. Did I get it there? Aha. Okay. Right? I'm running with you here. It is not centrally controlled. Mm-hmm. Right? This is, it exists outside of the government or the fiat currency system. Which allows for a lot of tax loopholes, I feel like, too. It's, uh, so I don't, that's not where I'm headed with this. The okay. IRS is pretty much I just said. I felt like I had to throw that out yeah, there. The IRS has said, look, if you don't disclose your Bitcoin transactions, you could be committing fraud, and that's something we can throw you in jail for. Right, but I feel like that's hard to track if it's not within the banking system. Well, oh, it's hard to track, but the issue is if they get you for anything and then find that, you've now committed crime, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's not taxable. No, it is taxable. You're just avoiding or evading your taxes. But I feel like Bitcoin is largely used in crime syndicates to begin with. Not, well, well, not, I'm not saying that I'm if just, you have look, Bitcoin, look, you're a criminal. Is, if you're committing crime anyway, it's like, well, what do you care? You're already committing crime. You're just hoping to not get caught. But for somebody that's existing in the largely legitimate system, uh-huh. thinking they're going to somehow sidestep taxes through cryptocurrency, you're breaking the law now. Yeah. So that's not the path. Not the legitimate path. No, of course okay? not. So, but, but the interesting thing about it is you can print more dollars because mm-hmm. the government can just change the numbers but on the spreadsheet. But you can't make more Bitcoin. Right. It's decentralized it's and the government's not in charge of it, so they can't alter it. So, in effect, it behaves, and this is the link to gold you were talking about. It acts like a commodity mm-hmm. that... Is it's sort of a digital commodity. It's it was, more fixed and that's why yeah. it's decentralized. And so now what makes Bitcoin valuable? Whatever people determine its value yeah, it's to be. That's be- why I hate it. It's like the I, belief that somebody else will pay you more for it in the future. Yeah, and that's why I absolutely to my core hate cryptocurrency. Yeah. So the yeah, the, the cryptocurrency itself is it's it's not a sure thing. It's still a speculative bet, but it's getting more and more legitimized. Same way Fiat currency could be argued is not legitimate. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's entirely based on the faith and credit of the United States government for the U.S. dollar. If the government were to default, then what's to make your dollar have any value at all? Mm-hmm. Okay. And now somebody wear somebody wearing a foil hat's like, that's why I built me that shelter, right? And I'm <laughs> that's well, okay. why all my money's in Bitcoin. And and maybe you're right. I think it's a really extraordinary you know, fringy prospect that we're going to go through some kind of cataclysmic event where the entire world's going to fail and you need to live underground for three years and come back out and, you know, hope that you're the only lone survivor and that the radiation has subsided, right? I mean, like yeah. that's that's a little 
a little hardcore. But there's some folks out there that are that extreme, and then there are other folks that just say, well, you know, we could have a big earthquake, so I'm prepared. That's a different level of prep, by the way. Oh, being yeah. Being prepared for an emergency is different than being prepared for the complete and utter collapse of all known government and And then we have a bigger problem anyway. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, who cares about the value of your dollar if everything collapses? If everything collapses. Yeah. Then your Bitcoin's, even though it might be worth, what is well, it now, $36,000 a coin? 41 yeah. last I looked. Yeah. But, but the, the great irony is it's in dollars. It's priced in dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, Presum- so if the dollar falls and is completely trashed. Well, if the dollar disappears, then what are you going to buy Bitcoin the, with? Yeah. Maybe euros or gold or I don't but know. It, yeah. So We're getting down a rabbit trail, aren't we? Yes and no. It, it's back to China. And the whole thing is, why would China say, no, 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 no cryptocurrency? Because they want their currency to have all of the value they don't well, want yeah it's because they don't want people circumventing the currency yeah again i don't know that that's it this is me I feel wearing like that's my logic though i feel like that's just borderline logic yeah it's sort of what's occurred to me is hey we need to make sure that we are not giving any other opportunity for our currency to be undercut if you will yeah in in an environment where we've had a potentially destabilizing event now let me be real clear on air here. This is an evolving topic that I am learning about. So I reserve the right to be wrong. Okay? Like somebody comes back later and goes, well, that crazy wingnut was talking about say, no, this crazy wingnut said he put on his foil hat and said, let's play a game here. What if? And if I'm wrong, I don't have to eat these words. I need to correct them. Yep. Okay? That's where we're at on this bad boy. But it's really interesting to see the behaviors because that to me is don't look at what somebody says. Look at what somebody does. Yeah. Look at what the governments are actually doing. Right. And I feel like so many people overlook that. They're just like, well, I've got a feeling that this. And you're like, back it up. Yes. We have that occur regularly where I have investors that contact me and emotionally they get amped up about something and then they want to make a, a poor decision. And so we have to try to walk it back and say, all right, slow down here and let's you know, weigh the pros and the cons. Sometimes bad stuff really does happen in the investment landscape. Like companies do go bankrupt, right? We, you really do see that occur. I mean, in 2008, you saw loan defaults that created a cascading event that really did damage the banking system. Mm-hmm. But you have to look at, are we looking at the forest or are we looking at the tree? Right. You know, you can have a tree or two fall down and it doesn't mean you don't have a forest anymore. It just means sometimes a tree falls down. <laughs> so hence back to my original point of the plan. Why am I not so terrified of this last week or two of market volatility as and in a mar in September? And our, isn't September historically kind of a low month? You know, that's a great question, Matt, and we should probably answer the rest of it after this super important profit break. Yep, we're going to do that. When we come right back, we will cover this and more, but we got to take this break first. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.
Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Matt, uh, we have been talking today about the plan, mm-hmm. right? but in the most obscure way possible, I think. Yeah, a little uh, bit, but we've been walking through it pretty. It's it's this theme underneath. The plan is really about managing yourself and your own expectations, right? Mm-hmm. You develop a plan when it comes to investing because that's what enables you to see a day like today and not get terribly excited about it, right? right. So here's the weirdness. If you've been investing in a checking or like in a savings account and you're making point oh nothing, you have a hundred thousand dollars and over the course of this year maybe you get paid sixty bucks in interest. Sure. That same account invested in the S P five hundred today would have lost two thousand dollars. Yep. Right? And so you're like, wow, that t- t- losing two thousand bucks, that would be pretty awful. Because, you know, I'd rather just take the sixty dollars of gains and not have that pain. But what I would tell you then is, well if you'd have looked at it year to date you would have been what? trading the opportunity to make thirty thousand? Well, about fifteen, let's say. Okay. Fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars would have been your gain so far year to date in the S P. It's about fifteen percent year to date. Uh I'm not looking exactly at where it is, but it's in that ballpark. So you want to tell me that sixty sixty dollars of upside as opposed to the fifteen thousand you could have actually gotten? And well, in hindsight, any idiot would have taken the fifteen grand, right? Even if yeah. you just were going to give it away. But that's not the whole st- story, is it? No, it is not. No, because the investing has days like today where you have a $2,000 down day in that account, and you never have a down day in your checking or your savings account, in an FDIC-insured account. And you know why don't you ever have a bad day? Or down day, I should say. Because there's just no risk. Yeah, because the FDIC insurance is backed by the government printing press, mm-hmm. which prints the dollars. So, you know, you may have a purchasing power risk, right? The inflation risk of not keeping right. up. But or the, the risk the, of losing the money. Right, but the money's going to show up as it's supposed to because the printer that is in charge of printing it has said they'll print it for you regardless of value. Yeah. But so the that savings account though really, I mean, your inflation is real. And well, especially now. A lot of people don't fully grasp that concept, I feel like. They're okay with that $60 because it yeah. feels good, it's safe, but I I think there's a true lack of understanding of what investing is for those people because mm-hmm. they view the stock market as gambling. Right. Right? And the stock market, and I will say this on air, and it doesn't come with guarantees and warranties, but it comes with a duh, which is the stock market is it is where you are participating in the economic output, right? Yeah. You're, you're buying things that are functioning in the economy. And so if that company is growing, it should be outpacing the purchasing power of the dollars because it's earning on top of it, right? So it's not just a store of value. It should actually be increasing your purchasing power because that's what investing is supposed to do. Where people construe it as gambling is when your time horizons don't line up or Or when you spread your, when you, when you don't diversify enough to, to, to diversify away 
your what we call idiosyncratic or non-systemic risk. I just love saying idiosyncratic because I don't think it makes me sound smart, but it's got a lot of syllables. Right? It's like, I don't know. Who uses the word idiosyncratic? David Littlejohn does. Right? It's a normal financial term, but we use this stupid language. Like an idiosyncrasy is like a one-off quirkiness, right? So idiosyncratic, that's just a the 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 quirkiness of individual company investments, right? So or or mutual funds or whatever it might be, but the lack of diversification. If you own one stock, it's all or nothing, right? Heads or tails. You're either going to win or you're going to lose on that thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we see that sometimes. Oh, you see highly concentrated positions, but we've used this illustration before. The more coins you have, the more samples of heads or tails you get, the less probability that you have of being all heads or all tails. Yeah. And if you have Decent investment research, your danger is usually the systemic risk more than the non-systemic risk. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? So the non-systemic risk or the idiosyncratic risk is the risk that an individual company has something go wrong or an individual investment, I should say. And you can diversify against. Well, and if you are diversified, you're unlikely to have everything fail at the same time. Right. But everything gets affected by things that are in the system, right? So systemic risk is something you can't diversify away. Like tax law changes. It hits it all, right? Yeah. You can't be like, well, you know, don't worry, I diversify my, my portfolio, so now my capital gains tax is different on one. No, it's universally <laughs> applied to the whole system, so the diversification's not gonna help, right? Because it's gonna get everything. So instead, you have multiple strategies that you try to employ to adapt to those changing system risks. And sometimes you try to change your behavior tactically, sometimes you don't. So if, if the idea is I'm just going to wait it out because the markets, you know, the boat tips to one side and then it kind of rocks back to the other side. Well, yeah, if you're willing to be patient and ride it out, historically speaking, and, and I can say that so far it's never not happened, Historically speaking, you're, if you're invested in something like the S&P 500, eventually it recovers and goes to all-time highs. Interestingly enough, the S&P 500 is not static, right? The stocks have changed in that 500 mix. It really has. So it's not the same stocks forever. There's a little bit of change, so there's some management to that. It's just a formula. It's not a active decision matrix where somebody's trying to outperform the market and pick better stocks to pick winners and avoid losers. It's just the market in by formula. Yeah. So is it gambling? It is it, if it, you're it is if your time horizon's short enough. Yeah. Right? I need this money in a year and you go, okay, well I'm betting that a year from now it's higher. There's a gamble to that. Mm-hmm. It might be very good statistically likely but you're still a gamble. If it's 10 years, I think there's been one period now where the S&P 500 would have been negative. If you started in 1999 at the peak and went to 2009 at the trough, you could have gone 10 years and not made money in the S&P. And I don't know if that includes dividends or not. Interestingly enough, in the 11th year, the index in 2009, it bottomed in in. February of 2009, March 9th of 2009 was the bottom of the market. I remember because we all lived it. It sucked. (laughs) 
And then the market proceeded just throughout the rest of the year to go up about 40% in one yeah. year. So then it averages out over that. Well, then you average 10 years out at 4% a year yeah. in simple terms. It didn't. That's not the actual mm-hmm. annualized return. But it was positive. Right. In the 11th year. There's some, there, so far, there's never been a 20-year period where you'd have lost money investing. So it's a gamble, yeah. but it's one if you just the look long, at the data over yep. a really long course of time. The longer your time horizon, the better it looks. And here's the other thing. There's some science hidden under that art. Right? Yeah. I mean, when I say that, everybody, there's some science hidden under that art. I feel like it's more math almost than science. Well, I, I think that's part of it. I mean, there, you call it math, whatever you'd like, but there are there's logic-bound decision-making, and there's investment relationships. Like, think of the yin and the yang concept. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about China today, right? <laughs> Sometimes one thing goes up while another thing goes down, or vice versa. Okay? That is an example of non like like inverse correlation sure one goes up while the other goes down so you're you're keeping your position neutral it's like ballast okay but sometimes you can hedge or essentially give yourself a better upside opportunity with a limited downside opportunity through the right structuring and through the right asset mixing and that's part of the the science underneath or the math mm-hmm. underneath the hood of investing. I know, Matt, you're kind of sensitive to this now because you've been really doing a lot of this lately, just testing and learning. Yeah. In, in, so in your investment journey, what are some of the things that you've noticed recently? Hmm. I've noticed, like you just mentioned, how there's ways to hedge against things going sideways, right? And so I was looking today at gold. Um, and I was looking at an index that kind of specializes in gold. And I was noticing that when COVID happened and the stock market took a plunge, gold went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And so if you had some assets in gold during that time and you had some assets in the stock market, well, yeah, you might have took a loss in the stock market, but your value in gold went way up. So you could have sold the gold on a high and recuperated a lot of loss. And then when the market came back, okay, well, you've recovered that money that you quote unquote lost during COVID. Yeah. So, so there's ways to hedge. And it's not just what you own, but there are the position sizing, there's behavior around it, mm-hmm. there's tax management. There are there are actual tactical things that have been demonstrated to add additional value to investors. One of the things of which includes proper tax management to try to avoid short-term capital gains and to try to harvest losses against gains that's something i see a lot of people just kind of forego on and they don't they don't find it important enough to seek help and it really burns them and they just spend a lot more in taxes than they right than they needed to really this goes back to i know we've had some people reach out and ask us about this uh and if you would like more uh, if, if you're interested we're now polling our listeners right so send me an email at info at littlejohnfs.com and what I'm curious about is, should we produce a, a YouTube video on tax loss harvesting? I think right? we should. Okay, well, I don't want to do the work just for Matt. I yeah. want to know if our listeners want to know about it, okay? Give us a reason <laughs> to. Like, email David and be like, listen to Matt, make the video. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a vote for Matt, right? Vote for Pedro. Too. Or what if they need help? What if they need personalized help? Can they get that? No, no, mm-hmm. we don't help people. Darn. 
So it's a tough break. There. Not all we do, but we always pitch the show at the end. For now, we got to take a break. So uh, what we'll have you guys do is sit tight because we do have a couple uh, other ideas for you as investors to manage the volatility in your portfolio. But first, let's see profit breaks. Darn. Hey, gang, welcome back to the home stretch here. Uh, we are talking about the plan, right? And we're talking about it in this, this vague term. So if, in finance, look, investing is it shouldn't be gambling. If you if you start with the plan, uh, then you and really stick to the plan. Yeah, start with it. Stay, I'm, adjust I'll go the so plan. Far as to adjust the plan. Yeah. yeah. You may learn. And I would say if the facts change, I will change. Right. Mm-hmm. If I learn new information, I can do something better. I'm going to adapt. Uh, I, I've said that about a number of things. So I'm, I'm not, I don't come on the show and say, you know what, this is the rules. Other than, I mean, there's things that I don't know how this fact can change. Things like spend less than you make. Okay. I don't know how you're going to conjure that one into a way that <laughs> that will ever be wrong. So I just kind of go like, this is the rules, right? Spend less than you make. Right. right. And don't be an idiot. Like I can just say, like, there you go. Those are good rules. Spend less than you make and don't be an idiot and you'll do pretty well. So when we talk about the plan, the idea is this is as much about managing yourself as it is. You, know, you really can't make the markets do anything. Right? We can't make investments do something. So what we do is we manage our behavior and then we understand the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have a good grasp of the way things have historically behaved, the way the relationships historically work, and so forth, then you can design an investment strategy that has a high probability of working, and then you can also identify when things break more quickly so that you can make adaptations. I feel like it's harder, though, when it's your own money and you get emotionally involved in it. I think anything is harder when you're emotionally involved. And I know you've mentioned the analogy of like a doctor operating on their own family member. Right. You're you're really invested, so you might slip up. You might make mistakes, do something you wouldn't normally do. I feel like that's kind of the same thing with finances, too. I, I think that there's an element of that. but uh, So here's where I'll just – I'm coming clean with our listeners, right? Mm-hmm. We run a fiduciary investment firm. We're professional investment advisors and financial planners in our firm. Okay, And so one of the things that you're supposed to do as fiduciaries is disclose when you have a conflict of interest. Okay, mm-hmm. And so, hey – uh, if we're recommending life insurance as part of somebody's financial plan, and then we turn around and inform them that, oh, by the way, we have a life insurance brokerage uh, capacity, and so we could sell you the life insurance, then I better be able to tell you with a straight face too, but I have a conflict of interest because I've recommended this to you, and if I sell it to you, they pay me when I when you buy it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a commission embedded in how this works. And so... It doesn't mean that I can't give you proper advice and help you find the right insurance. It means you need to understand if I have a conflict, how does it work so that you are informed and make the right decision as to whether or not you can trust my advice still. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you disclose something, it's no longer sneaky. Okay. so there's nothing sneaky about saying as professional advisors, when we say, hey, people get emotional about their own stuff and you can make dumb decisions where I would be remiss is if I then said, so you should hire a professional because you can't trust yourself. Right. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe that's what you're hearing and maybe that's even true, but I'm not suggesting that. I think the better educated you are 
And the more you plan in advance and establish your rules of engagement, the higher your probability of success. You yeah. know who hires us mostly? People who are really informed and know what they're talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. It's the people that can't or won't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. That's a simple explanation, right? If you can't do it, it's because you're, you're overwhelmed or you're scared or you, you lack the confidence, you lack the knowledge. So you need help. So you want to partner with somebody that you can get along with and trust and help you to fulfill the mission. The other is, you're just so darn busy. How else do you get to it with all the other stuff in your life? Right. And I that's mean, a real thing. You it could, or, is. or you'd rather do something else, right? Maybe you're not so busy, but you'd rather not have it be your thing. You want to focus your mental energy and time and talent elsewhere. Like salmon fishing. That's a Matt thing. Oh, Matt, is that just is, me? Matt is all about the salmon fishing. And like I'm yeah. all, like I enjoy salmon fishing on occasion. I I'm pretty sure that if you could be like a professional salmon fisherman, you just forsake everything else and go do that. Uh, could you do that as a job? Yeah. See, that to me is <sighs> I'm like, I don't think I'm, I could do it. I'm researching the laws. Like, can I get like a houseboat and just go park it in my favorite fishing spot on the river and just live there? Like, is that mm. a thing? Can I do that? Is that legal? Yeah, I just sell the and, house. And, I, buy a and for the benefit of all of our clients that listen on occasion, I can't focus that much on one thing, which makes me much more effective at research. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> I keep rotating. Well, look, there's the music. Look uh -oh. at that. We're out of time. And so we're going to have to discuss whether or not Matt can be a pro fisherman some other day. Look, if uh, you need help, give us a call. Do you have the number yet, Matt? 541-375-0898. Until next time, this has been Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.